All right, here we are once again. It is time for a chapter chat in Mark, the fifth chapter this time. As we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, as best we can tell, this is John Mark, who is the author. And uh, I mentioned that again because I'm going to actually say something about that later on, so that's kind of a teaser for things a little bit later. But I'm ready to talk about chapter five. How about you? Absolutely, brother. Let's do it. All right, chapter 5 is all about the power of Jesus. It's all about the power of Jesus. I mean, we're going to get one, two, three consecutive accounts that, as best we can tell, all happened in the same day, which makes this even more remarkable. This is a jam-packed 24 hours that the Lord is engaged in where he just shows remarkable power over demons over disease, and then over death. That's and we're going to get to see it in a powerful way. Exactly what I wrote in my notes. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, glad we're on the same page. Yeah. Well, in the end of chapter 4, I said this at the end of last week's, the, the miracle at the end of chapter 4 where Jesus demonstrates power over nature uh, really would have went well with this chapter uh, because it would have shown his power over these four different uh, you know entities or, 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 or powers that you know humans don't really have a whole lot of uh, power over, but Jesus uh, is going to show it. But we will look at these three that are contained here in the fifth chapter. You know, oftentimes we criticize these chapter breaks. Like, ah, that wasn't a good chapter break. But really, though, functionally, if I'm one of these people that's like, I'm going to read a chapter a day, this can quickly become two chapters a day if you like, oh, this guy just quieted a storm. Well, what's going to happen next? And, oh, this guy did this, and then and then he did this. So yeah. maybe it was strategic. And there is some some kind of some some excitement if you were reading this, especially for the first time, and you didn't know anything else about Jesus, especially for chapter five, because this happens, and then before you know it, this happens, and even in the middle of the second happening, the third happening starts before the second happening even gets cleared up, and so there's kind of some anticipation about how all of this is going to turn out, and we're just going to see that Jesus has it all under control. So let's read in the first few verses here in Mark chapter five, verse one. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So this is right after Jesus has calmed the, the stormy sea that same evening. They come to the other side. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So let's talk here just for a second about this guy that uh, we know as the, the garrison demoniac. And I, I, the first thing that always is of interest to me is verse 2 when it says that Jesus stepped out of the boat. Now, remember, Jesus isn't the only one in the boat. Yeah. The disciples are in the boat with him. But it says it only just says that Jesus stepped out of the boat, which makes me wonder if these other guys, um, they might be a little bit afraid to be Let's get out of the boat. Let's just stay in the boat. We're going to stay in the boat because this <laughs> crazy guy over here who's got some real serious problems over here. <laughs> that's um, an understatement. Yeah, that's, that is, that, that's putting it very mildly. Um, this guy's got a couple bad, he needs therapy is what he needs. <laughs> he, he, he needs some kind of help. And he comes rushing up, possessed with demons, and Jesus... Getting back to the courage of Jesus, Jesus is not afraid to get out of the boat. And he's yeah. going to go encounter this man. And let's just talk about this man. He is a wild man. 
Yeah. And uh, I like Mark's account because it probably gives the most detail of this particular event and this particular guy because the words that Mark used here just describe somebody who is completely out of control. No one can do anything with him. He has almost really supernatural ability because of the fact that he's got these these supernatural spirits within him. I mean, he's breaking chains, uh, and as a result, he's driven out of regular society, and for probably a lot of reasons, people are terrified of him. There's He's a danger to, to others, not only to himself, and... You know, I'm not sure if people recognized that he was demon possessed, or maybe just people just thought he was insane. You know, just kind of yeah. a, a, a nutso person. Uh, but he's living alone down here among the tombs. He's cutting himself. He's howling night and day like an animal. And just this guy would have been a terror to normal civilized uh, society. And so no one could do anything to him or for him. Yeah, and then I mean, it's just. This is just a sad state of affairs for the guy, and you you gotta have you gotta believe that Jesus had some kind of compassion for the person yes. as well behind all these. You know, all these other people, all they see is this they see this demon possessed guy. They they're just seeing the demons. Yeah, you know, they're seeing the results. But again, Jesus sees that that, that even under all that, there's a soul there. Yeah, and that's and, awesome. And and I think when I was younger, when I would study this or hear this talked about in Bible class. That's all you can fixate on is just this is a crazy man. Mm-hmm. But as I've gotten older, and, and and not that I understand everything about demons because I most certainly do not, yeah. but but it is clear that that is one of the, was one of the devil's greatest tools in New Testament times uh, to destroy people, and that is what's going on here. He's using demonic spirits to destroy this man and to uh, disfigure him and to demolish. What what God has created, you know, this here's a person who was made in the image of God, and now the devil is trying to destroy that, and it's hard not to have, when you think about it in those terms, to have some sympathy for yeah. this guy and the torture that he must have felt physically, mentally, emotionally, in every which yeah. way. And and that's, I mean, he he may not use demon possession anymore, but I mean, like we've talked about before, the analogy is still there with sin. Yes. Yeah, you know. Uh, I talked about that in the midweek message, a little plug there for anybody who hasn't listened to that one. Uh, you know, we the, the the sin that we see on other people, it might be ugly sometimes. We may not like the way it looks. We may not like the way it expresses itself in their lives. But like like what you're saying, the mature attitude is there's a soul under there. There's a human being there, and they're yes. made in the image of God. Yes. These demons, though, they have completely taken this man and mm-hmm. isolated him from everyone else and have made it impossible for anybody to be around him. They're hurting him even as he is hurting himself. And so verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, I was almost inclined to to do like a demon-y voice there to kind of add some... You can edit it in post. We can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know how a demon sounds. That's I only know what I've seen in movies and my imagination allows. But I hope I never do. Yeah. Uh, on that note. The one thing we are certain of, though, is that this demon knows who Jesus is. And he is quickly waving the white flag of surrender. Mm-hmm. This demon says, we've got no chance... We are not going to try to fight Jesus. That'd be a losing battle. We know that Jesus is in charge, that he has the power, more power than us. 
uh, and we're going to be beaten, you know, the, the moment we try to engage in spiritual battle with him. Right, which is so funny because in the movies and stuff that you were talking about, you know, it's always this dramatic struggle with the priest is like holding up the crucifix and the person's head is spinning around and all that and they're they're resisting it. Sometimes the priest even fails and has to go back to the drawing board and he's like, guys, I don't know what we're going to do. But like, Jesus is just like, he's just there. He didn't even like hardly say anything yet and this thing's like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. It, well, and let's look at what Jesus does say. Verse 8. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Yeah. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And the man, the voice of the demon here, says that this demon has overtaken this man. The demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, so this is not a man with a demon. This is uh, a man with many demons. Now, a legion in a Roman army was a division of 6,000 men. Now, I don't know that that necessarily you know computes out to the same you know numbers that that this demon is talking about when he uses this name. But if we did couple that figure six thousand, and we couple that with what's said here in just a few minutes about the pigs, and that's mm-hmm. what this story is most well known for is the pigs. There's two thousand pigs. I, I think it would be easy for us to just say that this man was filled with hundreds, if not thousands. Of demons. Yeah. I mean, I don't even want to be possessed by one demon. Yeah, that might be a little inconvenient, you know. <laughs> yeah. But the affliction of, of this, this is this kind of where you start to kind of get some sense of, of uh, I mean, just some, some sympathy for this guy. Uh, I mean, what what is that like? What kind of miserable existence has this man lived and for, for how long has he had to live it? Uh, you know, the amount of demonic, satanic power that is concentrated in his physical body. Right. It's kind of like the leaven thing, though, I think. I mean, it might have started with, like, one demon, and then, like, it kind of, like, influences him to do some rough stuff, and that opens him up a little bit more. Yeah, And then they just flood in, you know? I mean, that's that's how sin works, so I would imagine if demons are operating kind of like the way that sin does, then, yeah. Yeah. They're probably doing a similar thing there. Yeah. So if this guy's, I mean... He's not had a good go of it. That's the bottom line. He's not, and I kind of poked fun at the disciples for not wanting to get out of the boat earlier. But you know what? I don't want to get out of the boat either. Uh, yeah, I'm not jujitsu in this thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to try to get near this guy. But here's the, the impressive thing: Jesus never flinches. Mm-hmm. So verse ten, uh, the demon begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying. Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. <laughs> and, yeah, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. And they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. Now, R- real quick, I just got to say this. The demon has to ask permission <laughs> For Jesus to exercise it. Yeah. Like, it's, again, not like the movies at all where there's this struggle. It's like, please just send, exercise me over there. Don't exercise me over yeah. here. Yeah. Like, man, that's... I, I mean, I have questions about this. Like, I mean, why, why did he not want to be sent out of, or why did these demons not want to be sent out of the country? I mean, did they just like it there? Or, 
you know, this, you know, we've, we'd, we'd like you being at home here. Just give us somebody else to live in yeah. here. But then they're just like, well, there's some nice falafels down the block, and we just have really yeah. loved this little place. I don't know. Yeah. And and yeah. why and then why specifically ask to be put into the pigs again? It's and here's the thing: us even talking about that, and the fact that so many times questions get asked uh, on the pigs yes. and the demons and all that really just shows that we're really probably not even reading the text the way that Mark intends for us to. We've now meandered. We have because <laughs> what Mark wants us to see is he wants us to see Jesus. Yeah. That's where the focus needs to be, and that's where it has to be. Um, Mark wants us to just stand in awe of just the unmatched power that Jesus possesses. Um, and so when Jesus does send the demons into the swine, the swine end up going crazy just like the man uh, had been crazy. They're just as out of control as he was, and they rush into the Sea of Galilee, and they drown. Now, I, I've heard lots of, and I've even seen lots of writing, like entire articles devoted to the subject of of the swine. Why did Jesus send them, uh, the demons, into the pigs? Because Why didn't he just send them away? dirty animals. Yeah. And da, da, da. yeah. There was, and I, I wrote this down. My favorite explanation was this commentator, and, and he said this without even the slightest hint of sarcasm. He said that these pigs were obviously owned by Jewish swine herders. Ah, of course. And since no Jew had any business raising pigs, this was Jesus' way of taking a swipe at those bad Jews who were obviously breaking kosher dietary laws. Ah. Yeah, so. That's yeah. right there in the text, plain to see. Yeah, exactly. Who reads it. Exactly. Yeah. It's so obvious. How could we miss it? Yep. It's right uh, there in verse 10.5. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 let's be clear. If, if you're not reading a Bible with us at home, that, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> uh, we don't know that. The text doesn't say that. That's nothing but just baseless speculation. And again, and all hey, that's, all hey. that speculating does is it just detracts us from the main thing. Right. And hey, if you don't have a Bible open, come on. What are you doing? Yeah. It's chapter chat. Yeah, but the thing here is that, that that the pigs are not important. What is important is that we have a man here who had a soul, and this yeah. man was saved by the uh, unrivaled power of Jesus the Christ. Right. And when we get all fixated on the pigs, we end up making the same mistake that the people made. Actually, did you notice that in verse 14 again? It says that the people came to see what had happened. It seems like they were really interested in the pigs as well. And then verse 15, here's the other mistake that people made. They came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, notice this, and to the pigs. Oh, whoop, whoop. All about those pigs. Let me tell you about the pigs. You won't believe what happened to these pigs. Verse 17, and they then began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. What we need to see from this first miracle is that the destruction of all these pigs, uh, it shows clearly, first of all, what, what these demons intended to do. Right. And that is to kill and maim and destroy uh, a person made in the image of God. And then we need to see that Jesus delivered that man um, by his power. And that is that Jesus, uh, he came to rescue people from from the power of darkness and from the power of Satan. And that's echoed again and again throughout the New Testament, even for us today. While we're not held in, uh, under the bondage of, of of demons in the way that people were, you know, in, in first century New Testament times, people are still held captive um, by the devil. Uh, and they're 
uh, in the darkness. And Jesus has come to deliver us out of the domain of darkness and to bring us into his marvelous light, First Peter chapter 2, verses mm-hmm. 9 and 10. And so the principle here, the main thing, uh, that carries on even 2,000 years later. Yes. Um, and so these people, though, when you fixate on the wrong thing, verse 17, they beg Jesus to, to get out of here. Now, now I have a question. Fire away. This, this is legitimate. Uh, let me tell you what my conclusion is. You tell me if you have a different one. When I'm reading this, I kind of scratch my head, and I was like, well, this guy, Jesus came in here, and he solved this problem that was in their community, this demon-possessed guy. You know, I'm sure that that, that was kind of the talk of the town. Well, you know, why are they not having the same kind of reaction that like the demon-possessed man has later and like other people have where they're like all about Jesus, they, they love that he did this, that they're asking him to leave. I mean, I kind of thought maybe they think the guy's too powerful. That, I think that's part of it. And then, and then maybe also like he's like a troublemaker, like, you know, well, he showed up and then all this drama happened with this guy's pigs and this is just a whole mess. You know, like some people will say, you know, they'll, they'll like, blame you for starting trouble if you study the Bible and you find out that they're in some kind of sin. They'll be like, well, you're just trying to be a troublemaker. Like, you know, just kind of look at the what's been exposed and what's happened versus, like, the underlying truth of it all. Is that kind of what's going on here? I think or? so, especially the first part. Um, uh, these are people who I, I don't think they understand what's going on. And when people don't understand things, they get afraid and get nervous. And I think they're just—they're nervous at what they have witnessed, and it's—it's it's more than they can handle. I'd like to think that maybe, like after a couple of days, probably a lot of those same people who had asked Jesus to leave probably thought, you know what, that was actually something really good that he did. And I don't understand all that. I don't know how he did that, and um, I don't—I don't get it all. But you know what? I, we probably should have, like, we probably ought to seek him out, you know, yeah. and try to bring him back if we can. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have sent him away. Maybe we that need was to just have a, this guy for a gospel meeting. Let's invite him for a gospel <laughs> meeting to come back here to the garrisons and uh, preach for us. And actually, this is interesting because th- there's no other mention of Jesus ever coming back to this region uh, ever again. And um, I, it is worth noting, this is one of the things I want us to notice. The first part of verse 18. Mm-hmm. These people have asked Jesus to leave, verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, you know what that says to me? Because we've been kind of noticing some, just kind of some evangelistic tips from Jesus. This verse says to me that if you ask Jesus to leave, he will leave. Yep. He is not going to beg and plead to like, well, hold on, guys, come on. Now let me just explain to you what's going on. Let me spell all this out, and then maybe you'll you'll change your mind. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't say, well, well, let me do a couple of other miracles for you, and maybe that'll help. Uh, you know, settle this matter in your mind. He doesn't do that. When people say, hey, Jesus, we don't want you around, Jesus is going to go. And I say all of that to say there comes a time in our efforts when we're trying to talk with people that we love very much and we care about very much. They have a soul, and we want them to know the truth, and we want them to be saved. But there comes a point when they say, we don't want you anymore. I don't want to hear this anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore about this. You know what we need to do? We need to do like Jesus. We need to yeah. just go. Yeah. Um, I think it does way more harm than good when we just try to just bully them into religious conversations after that point. Yeah. Um, and Jesus, had, like I said, we're never going to do any better than to just follow the example of the, the perfect, spotless Son of God here. And so Jesus says, okay. 
Asked me to go, I'm going to take my power, and I'm going to take my message, and I'm going to go take it to somebody who does want it. And so verse 18 goes on. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. So, I, hey, Jesus, I'd, I'd like to be one of your disciples. I'd like to follow you. Well, Jesus has something in my, else in mind for him. Verse 19, he did not permit him, but he did say to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Now, that is a little bit different than Jesus' regular M.O. up to this point in Mark. Because normally, when Jesus has performed you know, a healing or some other kind of amazing miracle, what does he usually tell people about talking about him? He goes, shh, yeah. don't tell anyone. Yeah, keep it to yourself. Let's keep this on the down low. Uh, and the reason for that was because whenever word would get out about that, it usually resulted in you know just throngs of people coming around Jesus, and he, he couldn't go anywhere, and he couldn't get anything done. This man, however, is going to be going to a place, says there to, to, to the Decapolis. Mm-hmm. He's going to go to a place that, at least as far as the biblical record is concerned, we don't ever have any record of Jesus ever going to that place. Okay. And so I think it is for that reason that he tells this guy, hey, I want you to go back, and I want you to tell him. How about this? Uh, that guy had a lot of explaining to do. Oh, um, yeah. Probably a lot of broken relationships where, you know, he was all demon-possessed, and, I mean, before they kicked him out of town, he's, like, waking up in the middle of the night screaming, cutting himself, yeah. punching people, wrestling people. You know, he's got to explain himself. So, I mean, maybe maybe Jesus gave him a little slack and was like, yeah, go tell everybody that you don't have any demons anymore, like, yeah, that's pretty important for yes. this guy too. So yes. that might factor in as well. There's that part of it, and then, and then probably, and the more important part of it is to let them know, hey, this is this is the work of God, and right. and there is someone on the scene right now in in you know here in the, the the Palestine part of the world who is sent from God, and and you need to know about him, and you need mm-hmm. to know about the mercy that he extends to people who are uh, who are held captive by the devil uh, against their will. And uh, I want you to tell them all about it. And yep. the, the good thing was, the end of verse 20 says, that when that guy did go home and do that, everybody marveled. Yep. They had the exact kind of response that they should have had. It's the kind of response that the people there at the, in, in the garrisons, it's the kind of response they should have had, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like they really did. Yeah. Um, but these people got it. Uh, yep. They marveled at what Jesus could do. Truth be told, we can't always tell, I, I think, why Jesus told some people to be quiet and some people to go tell people he knew the whole. He saw the whole board, and we just don't like. So we can't. We can't yeah. know all the little cogs and gears of what's going on. But it obviously worked, like you said, because yeah, there they are, marveling. So. Yeah, yeah. He knew where else all all else he was going to be going during the, you know, the few years of his earthly ministry, and you know how he needed to hit certain spots and places, and how the word could spread and so forth. And yeah, he's able to see a bigger picture, uh, much broader view than uh, than any of us can. Um, Crazy thing is, I mean, that would, that would that that is more than a full day there. I mean, for me, that would be like a week's worth of work, uh, it would seem like. But Jesus is just getting started. So, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, so now he's coming back across to the other side of the Galilee where he had been uh, back in chapter 4, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. So here's all these people who actually, you know, Jesus had got into the boat the day before and was using the boat as, as a pulpit, right? Yes. He was doing all his teaching. And then just decided, well, let's just, let's just go ahead, since we're in the boat, let's just go ahead and go to the other side. 
but apparently the curiosity of a lot of folks from the previous day had built to where it seems like as soon as he got back to the other side, I mean, people are like just waiting for him to show back up once again. Hmm. And we need to see the significance, verse 22, of the fact that it says that one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, comes and falls at Jesus' feet. Now, a ruler of the synagogue. Now, up to this point, Jesus and people that we would consider kind of part of the religious establishment, they are at complete odds with one another, right? You know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, we've already seen some interactions with them and uh, the, the, the kind of ruffling of feathers that's happened there. Uh, these are the very people who are plotting to destroy Jesus. They are not his friends. They are not interested in him. They're actively trying to turn people away from Jesus, and right. yet this man who is a ruler of the synagogue, he falls down at Jesus' feet. And we're told that his name is Jairus, verse 23, and here's his issue. Verse 23, he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, I think it's worth us just being impressed right now with Jairus. Just think about all the things that he had to kind of cast aside in order to come and see Jesus. He First of all, he casts aside his dignity because the first thing it says about him is he comes and he falls on his face. Yeah. So he's like, he's he's you know completely humble and he's given up any pretense of worrying about what, what people think of him. He's given up probably some of the prejudices that he's been fed about, about who Jesus is and, and what he's all about. He's having to give up his pride. He's maybe even having to give up some of his friends and his co-workers who were the very ones who were in opposition to Jesus. He maybe is even risking his job as the ruler of the synagogue. You know, the ruler of the synagogue is the guy who was in charge of kind of making all the physical arrangements for um, the things that would happen maybe on the on the Sabbath day. Like you had to be the one to, to get the speaker lined up who's going to do the reading that day. you got to get all the books ready. You're the one who gets everything set up, uh, and you're taking care of all that stuff at the synagogue. And, you know, seemingly, you would think, they're still going to want him to do that, but if he identifies himself now as a believer in Jesus, is, is he still going to have a job? Hmm. We don't know. You know, how are all the, the powers that be? How are they going to look at that and uh, think about that? And what I love about Jairus is he didn't care. Yeah. He's not worried about all that. You want to know why I think? I think it's because death is a humbling thing. And we're afraid of that. And, and she's not dead yet, let's be no, clear. I know. Disease, I know. sickness, yeah. all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. The, the encroaching thing uh, yes. of, of this, this mortality of his daughter. Yes. But like we fear death, like our own death. So much. We try to avoid it. You know, if someone comes even close to hitting your car when you're on the freeway, you're like, what are you doing? You know, we're afraid to die. That's that's one thing. But losing a loved one yeah. is a whole nother level. And he's like, he's looking at, he's staring down the barrel of that right now. Yes. And it's like, yeah, how can you have any pretense at this point? There's you know? a reason that at funerals we use that as an opportunity to try to present truths about the gospel and about God, and about Jesus, and about eternity. And it's because suffering and um, you know, staring down the barrel of death and, and, and our own mortality, it, it causes us to start to realize what really is important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for Jairus, you know, maybe up until this point in his life, you know, being a, a dutiful ruler of the synagogue and fitting in with all of the other religious elite at the time, that may have been like 
you know, what was most important to him and maybe all the, the kind of the power that went along with having that role. But but now my daughter's sick. You know, she's a little girl and she's dying. And you can't help her. And you can't help her. There's nothing you can do. And so all you can do is just say, I need the Lord. <laughs> you right. know? I, I, I need Jesus in this particular case. Yeah. And I love the fact that Jesus does not do what I think I would be inclined to do to someone who had been part of this group that had been kind of the, the enemies of me, if I were Jesus. Jesus does not say, no, nah, sorry, fella, I can't help you out. Or he doesn't even say, apologize, and yeah. then we'll do it. Yeah, let's see, you, 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 let's, let's see how bad you really do want me to do this. He, see, he sees the demeanor of Jairus. He does, he does. He, he recognizes the great, uh, the, the, the humility, like I said a second ago, uh, and... Uh, there's going to be some faith here, but mm-hmm. actually I think we're going to see in a second that uh, he's wanting to help him to have even more faith. But Jesus does not refuse him because the first thing verse 24 says that Jesus went with him. Yep. Now, this is where we would maybe get all, we'd kind of be all leaning up. If I'm reading this for the first time, I'd kind of be leaning on the edge of my seat. You know, what's going to happen here with Jairus and his daughter? You know, what's it going to be like when Jesus actually goes inside the home of a ruler of the synagogue, and what kind of a scene is that going to be? Is he going to be able to raise uh, or to heal her, or you know, is she going to live? What's going to happen? But right in the middle of that, there's this really sick woman. Right. So verse 24. A great crowd then followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. So as if Jesus does not already have enough on his plate on this day, here's what happens next. Now, when it says here that this woman has this discharge of blood, uh, I don't know the precise nature of this affliction. Um, I did not look it up. It, it, it probably, I'm afraid if I did look it up, it would probably gross me out. So yep. I just decided to... We'll just put a big fat question mark next to that yep. one. And we'll just leave it there probably. Yeah. It, it, it may be like a hemorrhage of some kind, uh, but we're not certain. But the fact is that it says that she suffered with it for 12 years yeah. and that like, you know, all these doctors weren't helping her. It seems like maybe they were making it worse. Yeah. Um, Reminds me of that last patch with the demon-possessed man. Nobody could bind him. Nobody. Nobody can heal her. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah and that's really actually the, the theme with all three of these cases, I think. Uh, yeah. no, nobody else can do anything about it. Um, what we can be certain of, though, with this woman, even though we don't know the nature of the, the disease, is that she sees her need for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, uh, under the law of Moses, and we won't get too technical here, but under the law of Moses, a disease like this would have made this woman ceremonially unclean. And she would have been that way for the duration of having this disease. That means she can't do a lot of things. She can't go to the temple and worship. Uh, she can't, you know, kind of walk and maneuver through society like a normal person. And then on top of that, anyone else who touches her, they would then be considered unclean. And so as a result, that means she too has probably lived a very isolated life. That's what that's another similarity between her and the the demon possessed man, you know, she's she's kind of an outcast. We we can't be around you because if you know, if we get what you got, then I mean we're 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 in trouble too. Uh, she can't just go up to the people that she loves and like just give them a hug. Uh, so her existence for twelve years has probably been pretty miserable. Wow, and it's getting worse. And it says that she's she spent all that she had, so she's in poverty. 
even as her health is continuing to decline. I mean, this woman's in a bad way. But verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. Now, we already noticed this, I think, back in chapter 3, that people were already at the point of just wanting to touch Jesus. Yeah. You know, they kind of thought, even if maybe it was superstitious how they thought about it, they just thought, if I can just touch this guy, I'm going to be blessed in some kind of way. We know that there's something special about him. Uh, and, and I think at this point, she she thought, if I touch him, I, I could be healed. I could be better. My life could improve. Um, what's interesting, though, is this woman, she doesn't even touch Jesus' physical body. Which is probably because she's unclean and she knows it. That might be so. That might be so. And that might, and that's to her credit, if that yeah. is the case. Uh, but it says that she touches just the hem uh, of his garment, verse 28. For she said, obviously she maybe said this to herself, or you know, I don't know if she even had anybody else who she could say it to. She had said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, this causes me to say, you know, wow, is, is Jesus so powerful that, that even his clothes, <laughs> you know, can, can bring, you know, supernatural healing to people. And the answer is yes. <laughs> well, yeah, apparently so. Yeah. Um, you know what we would normally expect is that Jesus is gonna, you know, somebody comes to him, he's gonna stop and he's gonna, you know, wave his hands or he's gonna say some magic words or, you know, call smoke to appear or all yeah. kinds of ballyhoo to accompany, you know, his miracle and draw lots of attention to it. Yeah. Um, and and actually, by the way, let's just remember, let's still keep in mind here, we still got Jairus and his daughter hanging online too. Yeah, you know they're they're, they're waiting. So he's on the way right now. He's on the way. Then gets stopped with this, and so and some of this power we're going to see here in a second kind of comes out of him. And so, I mean, does he have enough power to take care of this? And then also Jairus' daughter, who's yes. still kind of waiting? Uh, well, yes. no, don't spoil it. <laughs> Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Verse 29, John's favorite word. John Mark's favorite word. Man, I'm never going to get past that. <laughs> and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So... When she touched Jesus, there was this immediate reaction, as is the case in all of the miracles. But so did Jesus. Jesus also felt something immediately. Verse 30, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and he said, Who touched my garments? Now, notice once again, verse 30, Mark keeps the emphasis on the power of Jesus. Right. Powers flowed out of him. Who, who, who touched me? And the disciples are going to think that they just kind of have this all figured out and they know better than Jesus does. And so they've got the answer, verse 31. Well, the disciples said to him, Well, Master, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Everybody's touching you right now, Jesus. Yeah. Come on, Jesus. I mean, there's tons of people touching you, and then you're going to call out this one specific touch. And actually, this person didn't even touch him. Who's the toucher? Yeah. Who's the toucher here? Yeah. But the disciples, you know, hey, you're such a celebrity. Come on, dude. what do you mean who touched me? Verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she kind of just owns up to it. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he then said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Mm-hmm. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, there's the cliffhanger for the finish of the Jairus uh, story. Um, but here's this amazing moment where Jesus turns. And, and, and actually, I, when I read that a second ago there in verse 30, when Jesus said, Who touched my garment? Um, I don't know the tone in which he said that. You know, I, the way I read it was, Who touched my garment? Yeah. For all I know, it may have been, Hey! Who touched my garment? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, I, I like to think it's like a gentle... like a, I hope... I, that's what I think it was. Yeah, too. I really don't know. I mean, however he said it, it was right to say, but I mean, I just... I, the, the way I'm kind of getting to know Jesus, I mean, I could see it being firm, but like, just like legitimately like, all right, somebody tell me who did this. Like, I, I want to talk to him. Yeah, yeah. And here's the thing. Jesus knew. Yeah. He already knew. He just wants them to come forward. Exactly. And and he wants to have this moment to say the great things that he says to her. You know, maybe she was scared that he was going to say, you know, woman, you're unclean. What are you doing touching me? You know, I don't I don't want your disease and uh you don't have any business, you know, intentionally touching, you know, someone of my stature. Yeah, that that's that's not Jesus. Uh Jesus instead shows just tremendous tenderness in how he responds to this woman and here's a woman who probably most people had had ignored, like purposely, like we don't want nothing to do yeah. with this lady. And I'm sorry for you, but I don't want nothing to do with you. Yeah, Jesus and actually giving her some attention. Seeing this kindness and gentleness amidst all that power is what makes Jesus who he is, though. Yeah, you know the we read about God being both just and the justifier. Like you know, he has all this power and authority, um, and we see the character of the Father in Jesus. Like, but yet there's this mercy and this like temperance to him where he's like again this is a soul yes yes and 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 i think the reason jesus wanted to have this uh, quick interaction with her and kind of call attention to her is because he recognizes that what she is motivated by here is tremendous faith mm-hmm. that, that that is what brings about the healing that she received i believe it's not so much the touch of her hand on the garment yes as so much what motivated it which was her her faith in the awesome power of Jesus. Yes. Uh, and I'll say again, maybe there was some kind of, there possibly may have been some superstitious tones to her faith at this point. I think her faith is probably incomplete. She doesn't know everything. Uh, but even as incomplete as it is, she's able to access uh, the power of Christ and yeah. she is made well. And here's the great thing about this. So we noted this with the with the, the Gerasene demoniac, and we'll note it again here. Um that same access to that power is made possible by faith even to this present day. Oh, yes. You know, the, 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 the cleansing and the healing that we need, not so much from physical calamities, but uh, our, our spiritual problems. And I think immediately about that great verse in Romans 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to who? To everyone who believes. That's right. And so we get access to that power by by faith, and this woman is a is kind of a, a physical uh, demonstration of that, but that's still readily available two thousand years later. Yeah, a lot of the I mean, Jesus. That's that's pretty much the whole mission of Jesus is to say, all right, you guys are having a little bit of trouble understanding these spiritual truths, so I'm going to come down, literally wrap myself in a physical body, and mm-hmm. show you physically the imagery that you need to see to get the spiritual applications. And now we have it. Yeah. Yep. Um, now. While this is going on, let's remember Jairus is there. You have to imagine he's, you know, probably wringing his hands and probably kind of fidgeting a little bit, like you know, 
Mom, Jesus, you know, time is of the essence here. Uh, hey, lady, yeah. hey, I feel sorry for you, and I'm glad you're better. But uh, you know, come on, we gotta go. Chop, chop. Let's let's, go. let's let's go. My daughter again, my little girl, she's dying. So verse 35 again. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, "Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further?" Hmm. So Jesus has done all of these other amazing miracles thus far. He's calmed the stormy sea. He's cast out demons. He's healed sickness and disease. But this right here now, this is something that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. we we got a dead person now. And so everybody has just kind of already resigned themselves to the fact that, okay, well, that's it. You know, nothing else that can be done. Don't don't bother. Don't, don't trouble uh, Jesus anymore. Just, you know, we, we tried, but just didn't act urgent enough, so let's just go ahead and call it a day. Well... Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Man. Yeah. That's just powerful. And I want, here's, here, here's, let's go back to the woman. This is maybe why I wonder, uh, possibly why Jesus kind of called attention to the woman in the crowd, and it may have been for Jairus' benefit as much as for anybody, because there's a connection there really between verse 36 and in verse 34, when Jesus said to that woman, your faith has made you well, and now here in verse 36, he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. He's saying, Jairus, we need to ratchet up our faith here. Yeah. You know, you, this this woman showed it. That's, that, that's what we need here from you. Don't think that the Son of Man is limited uh, in his power, I can I can handle this, 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 and this. But then when we get to this, well, that's that's kind of out of my out of my wheelhouse. There's this, none of that. This sort of fear just can't. I mean, there's a reverent fear that that can sure. coexist with faith, but like this kind of fear, just terror, it doesn't exist alongside of faith. Yeah, it just doesn't. Yeah, I, I need you to be fully on board, Jairus. And so, verse thirty-seven. So they obviously traveled all the way to the house, and he allowed, verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Now, there's always questions about, well, why did Jesus just take those three? You know, he's got the 12 at this point. Why did he just take those three? And the answer is, don't know. Yeah. Don't have a clue. Maybe the house was small, mm-hmm. and Jesus knew that, so we can't have all 12 guys in there. Um, don't know. Uh, what we do know, though, is that Jesus did want some eyewitnesses present and he selects these three to be just that. Now, these three are going to, of course, kind of comprise the kind of the inner core, the inner circle of Jesus. He seemed to have a, a special relationship with these three than, than all the others. This doesn't mean that he didn't love the others or that he wasn't friends with them, but this is just natural the way life is. You know, I'm friends with, you know, a hundred-something people here at church, but there's probably a smaller group that, like, I, I spend even more time with. And, yeah. Uh, that's just that, that's just kind of human nature. There's just people we gravitate to for whatever yeah. whatever reason. And these guys, these three, are going to get some special moments with Jesus. I'm thinking specifically yeah. because I'm going to be preaching on it uh, <laughs> this Sunday. I'm thinking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah. And they're going to get to see that, and none of the others are going to get to see it. But it's be wild. Uh, yeah, it's another thing too where uh, I, I just resign myself to say. You know, we wonder, like, why does Jesus pick these three guys for all these different things, and why are they there? And again, like, it's like he saw the grand scheme of things. He knew how things yeah. were going to pan out. He knew what these guys needed to see to be able to do exactly what they needed to do when they needed to do it. Same for all the other guys. So 
again, we just don't see the strategy behind it all, but I think I think it all makes sense by and by. It will. It will. So they get to come with Jesus, verse 38. They come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. When Jesus gets there, he sees a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, this is worth just kind of interjecting here because this is not just, you know, crazy hysteria because funerals in Jewish culture uh, were and still are a big deal. Um, especially in Bible times, you were expected, even if you were, if you came from like a lower income, impoverished family, by custom, you were expected to hire a minimum of two flute players and one professional whaler. Now, think about that for a second, like, that that's your job. Like, you, you just wail for uh... a living. <laughs> hey, hey, I, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a... You know, I work for the I work for the whaler. city. Yeah, I'm a professional whaler. Isn't it like a hoarse voice? Like I just I, I wail and, and yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, it just hurts. I, I'll talk later, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I just show up and and weep and holler and mourn for people. Uh, and, and so there, the, what was happening there was was yeah. probably actually quite quite normal. Um, but it's morning, is what it is. It is morning. And um, verse 39. So when Jesus entered the house, he said to them. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Oh, is that a rhyme? Now, uh, yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's be, be certain here. The girl is dead. Yes. Jesus is just merely using the metaphor of sleep here. And the reason he's using the metaphor of sleep is because he knows what's about to happen next. And that is he's about to wake her up, so to speak. Um, so, wakey, wakey. Yeah, so verse 40 and 41. They laughed at him. <laughs> well, what? How quickly the, the weeping and wailing turns to, to laughter. Uh, I imagine it's almost like a pained laughter, though. Like, <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Maybe even a little bit of just mockery, too. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so what's the next thing Jesus does? Verse 40, he puts them all outside, and he takes the child's father and mother and those who are with him, presumably Peter, James, and John, and he went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. This is a big moment now. Now, let's just stop right here for a second. Verse 41, Yeah. we might actually wonder why Mark goes to the trouble of recording the Aramaic here, this Talitha Kumai. He's yeah. not done that at any other point in, in his gospel yet. And so why is he, why is he quoting the, the, the Aramaic here? And I think, and this goes back to how I introduced uh, our, our study today, I think that may have something to do with Peter. You know, Mark's gospel is believed to be uh, influenced heavily by Peter's retelling of some events to Mark to kind of help. I'm going to give you some some very personal eyewitness things. Like, I, Mark wasn't in that house. Yes. But Peter was. And I think if Peter's retelling this to Mark, I think Peter being present in the room and now, for the very first time, seeing a person raised from the dead, yeah. somebody comes from death to life, I think the moment was so seared and burnt into Peter's memory that he could remember the exact words as they were said in that moment, and he never, ever forgot yes. what he witnessed that day. I, I think a lot, of it, a lot of the scriptures were getting like the gist yes. of a lot of things. But this, yeah, I mean... I would never, ever forget that. Yes. I mean, I have certain memories uh, that are very impactful. That you know, that that's 
I, I, I don't think I'd ever forget all the stuff that went into it. That's just this is just another level though. Yes, it's another level. Yes, and and and, and there will be a couple more places like this. Like I, I mentioned, the Mount of Transfiguration that'll happen in chapter nine, but that's another one of those places where later on in Peter's writing, Peter's actually going to say, "We remember that." Yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was unlike anything else I'd ever seen in my life, uh, and especially from, from, from at this point in his life. As far as I know, Peter had not seen a human being raised from the dead. Right. And that's what happens here. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up, and she began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Yeah. So here just a few minutes previous to this, uh, some of these folks were kind of laughing, whether it was just out of disbelief or maybe it was mockery at Jesus, but now the text says that they're just overcome with amazement, and that is quite simply because Jesus has exercised power unlike anything else. He's exercised power even over death. And once again, we can talk about the spiritual concept of that is still relevant today. Right. How Jesus is able to bring people from death to life. Now, he doesn't necessarily do that physically. He's not around to, you know, call Lazarus out of the tomb today. Yes. But he does do that. You think about Romans 6, or you think about uh, Colossians chapter 3, those passages that talk about baptism and what happens in baptism. There is power being exercised as a person dies, but then they are brought to life. Spiritually. It's powerful working of God. The powerful working of God. Yeah. Yep. And that's what we've seen all throughout this whole chapter is just the, the power of Jesus and the fact that he is God. All the things that we've highlighted so far throughout uh, the last chapter, even of the, the event that happened on the sea, the, the stuff with the, the demoniac and the sickness and now death and Jesus, you know, toppling each of these things that we're all like, man, that's... You know, this is horrible, you know. These are the great narratives of human life, the struggles that we go through, and he's just unabashedly, like, conquering all of them Mm -hmm. with, like, no problem, like, no struggle at all. It's it's truly amazing, and it's almost unbelievable if this wasn't an eyewitness account that people died for. Yes. You know? Exactly, exactly. Um, Well, the, the power that was available then... It, it is available still even at this present moment. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, great things that Mark shows us here in this chapter. This is so much more than just three good stories, and, and, and it, these are good stories, so to speak, to teach kids, because there's vivid details there, and that's a good place to start. But we want to get to a point where we recognize that, that there's, there's remarkable truths that continue uh, to be relevant to us even 2,000 years later. That's Mark, the fifth chapter. Any other thoughts before we wrap her up? Yeah, I just love everybody and hope you'll tune in to Mark 6. That's all. All right, looking forward to chapter 6 next week.